0: If you were here last week, or if you were able to worship online or listen to the podcast, we looked at an encounter with Jesus, which is what we've been doing throughout this fall. And the encounter with Jesus that we looked at last week was from John chapter 11, and it was a profound encounter as Jesus interacts with Mary and Martha over the grave and the dead body of their brother and Jesus's close friend, Lazarus. And I ended last week's sermon as Jesus stood over Lazarus' dead body, as Jesus was summoning Lazarus from death to life, and I said the only way that Jesus ultimately was able to summon life out of death in the life of Lazarus was to summon his own life unto death. The only way in that moment that Jesus could bring life out of death for Lazarus, and eventually for any who believe, is by bringing his own life to death. Well, in John chapter 20, the encounter we have with Jesus this morning, we get to look at what happens after Jesus summoned his own life to death as we see God the Father summoning Jesus' death unto life through his resurrection. And so stand with me, if you will, as we look and consider John chapter 20 this morning. Significant text, to say the least, in the Christian faith and worthy of our consideration this morning. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the other linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture." that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning simply that you would show us your truth, and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. may be seated. You might remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching on John chapter 9 and Jesus healing a man of blindness, I just so happened in my study throughout that week to read an article published that week that I was preaching on John 9 about some genetic modification as it related to blindness in the womb. Well, in a very similar, maybe not so coincidental way, this week as I'm preparing to look at John chapter 20 and this encounter particularly that these two men and Mary Magdalene, have with Jesus, which of course is a miraculous event through his resurrection. I'm reading in the Atlantic Magazine, which I read regularly, an article entitled, The Bible Without Miracles. Subtitled, Thomas Jefferson preferred Jesus's teachings to his supernatural acts and edited his copy of the New Testament accordingly. Apparently, Jefferson infamously Uh, And and there's much I could say about Jefferson and the founding fathers that I'm just like not going to talk about at the moment. But Thomas Jefferson, at best, was a deist, and most likely was an atheist. However, had an intrigue in religious religious freedom, and so you see those principles established in our country today. But also was intrigued by the teachings of Jesus. But apparently, literally took a razor and cut out the supernatural events throughout the Gospels, where he pared down, apparently, the Gospel of Mark to a mere 30 verses in Jefferson's Bible. As it turned out, Jefferson attacked only uh, one copy of the Bible because he was talking about Jefferson had these critics and whether Jefferson was a widespread critic of Christians and the Bible. And this author, James Parker, is saying, actually, he really only attacked one copy of the Bible, his own. Not with fire, but with a razor not in an act of dizzy desecration, but with a kind of serrated, slightly crazed reasonableness. He cut and pasted. He edited and he redacted. He called the resulting text a collage of verses from the New Testament, quote, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. We know this now as the Jefferson Bible. He wanted a Bible. He wanted a story that simply had the moral teachings of Jesus. This harkens to where we hear C.S. Lewis often and very famously talk about seeing Jesus as either liar, lunatic, or Lord, but we never are afforded the opportunity to simply look at Jesus as a great moral teacher. In fact, James Parker, the writer of this article, goes on to say this about Jefferson's perspective. Jefferson's Bible was the message minus the mumbo-jumbo. That's what Jefferson was after, the teachings, the precepts. He called them without the supernatural baggage. Jesus, the ethicist, Jesus, the philosopher, author of, quote, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. That's what Jesus was doing, offering a benevolent code of morals. Pause. Pause. It's amazing even today whether people would consider themselves adherents to Jefferson's Bible, atheist or deist. It's amazing how many actual Christians have reduced Christianity to a benevolent code of morals. It exhausts people. It wears people out. If Christianity is nothing but moralism and legalism, then I'm out. And you should be out too. Christianity is far more than a benevolent code of morals and ethics. Lastly, Parker goes on to say this. So Jefferson's narrative rumbles along at ground level on square wheels. No baptismal shock of light from above. No dove descending. And no risen Jesus. The Jefferson Bible ends with Jesus snug in the tomb. The cave mouth securely plugged, gobstopped by the not-to-be-moved stone. No more words. Resurrection foreclosed. And it's odd. A regular, somewhat inspired guru human, Jesus, if that's all Jesus is, then he makes less sense than before. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am the good shepherd, stripped of their divine qualities. Sound like weird Claims something like Charles Manson. Interesting perspective. Jesus simply as an ethicist, Jesus as a philosopher, Jesus' teachings as good, benevolent morals. But that's not the heart of Christianity. That's not what we have before the Bible, but it's understandable that people struggle with who Christ really is. It's understandable that there is a proclivity towards being attracted to Jesus simply as a great human teacher. This has been true throughout the ages. This was true even at the time that Jesus was alive, and this is true particularly for anybody that tends to be a little more cognitive leaning or at least thoughtful in their engagement at all. It's extremely difficult to make the gap and the leap into the supernatural. It's not that hard to see Jesus as a good person with some great ethics and some interesting philosophies. But that's not what Christianity is based upon. It reminds me of an article that I read published in 2016 with a columnist from the New York Times named Nicholas Kristof who seems at least to be an intriguing spiritual seeker. And he's done a series of different articles where he talks to key religious leaders and Christians asking them questions such as, Am I a Christian? And he engages in 2016 with a leading Christian apologist and scholar and pastor. And Nicholas Kristof asked this man this question. Must the resurrection be taken literally? And the Christian scholar and apologist answers this way. Jesus' teaching was not the main point of his mission. He came to save people through his death for sin and his resurrection. So, his important ethical teaching only makes sense when you don't separate it from these historic doctrines. If the resurrection is a genuine reality, it explains why Jesus can say that the poor and the meek will quote, inherit the earth. St. Paul said, without a real resurrection, Christianity is useless. We could think about it this way, I've heard it described. Let's say that you desire to be a member of Greenpeace, the organization, but you don't believe in climate change. Well, you would be considered to be outside the boundaries of a core fundamental belief of the entire organization that you want to be a part of. Well, the resurrection is like that with Christianity. If you're intrigued by the ethics and the morals, and even in wonder on some level, but you don't accept the resurrection as literally true. With all due respect, you're outside the boundaries of the organization. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. In fact, I would love it personally, especially being in a culture in the South so inundated with Christendom for so long, which unfortunately probably breeds inauthenticity. I respect immensely people that are authentic enough to say, you know what? I don't know if I believe in the literal resurrection. And I would say, I appreciate the honesty. And if they were to say, so do you think I can be a Christian? I would say, I don't think so. Because the resurrection is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Just like believing in climate change is at the heart of what it means to be in Greenpeace. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, the former bishop, of Durham, who is one of the greatest thinkers and voices today for Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity. He, like anybody ever, is not perfect, and you wouldn't agree with everything he says, but most people would say when N.T. Wright writes about the resurrection, particularly in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, it's probably some of the most significant Christian scholarship penned in over the last hundred years. So I'd simply say when N.T. Wright talks about the resurrection, we ought to listen And one of the things that N.T. Wright says about the resurrection and particularly Easter, and I find this to be timely as we move towards Advent, and don't take this as a rebuke, take this as a, hmm, let's think about that. Most Christians, if you were to ask them what the most significant day of the year is, would say Christmas. That's what our society has achieved. A romantic midwinter festival, though we don't actually know what time of year Jesus was born. Really, we don't. From which most of the things that really matter, the danger of the politics, are carefully excluded. The true answer, and I wish churches would find ways of making this more clear, is Easter. This is the moment of new creation. If it hadn't have been for Easter, nobody would have dreamed of celebrating Christmas. The resurrection is what Christianity is all about. And we need to know this. We need to know it initially, and we need to know it more deeply. James Stewart, who is a professor of theology at the University of Edinburgh, says this. What is the most characteristic word of the Christian religion? Suppose you were asked to single out one word to carry and convey the cardinal truth of the gospel. What word would you choose? I suggest it would have to be the word resurrection. That is what Christianity essentially is. It's a religion of resurrection. Hence the name of this church. The resurrection, Paul tells us once again, if it's not true, then nothing else matters. N.T. Wright goes on to talk about the wonder and awe of the movement of Christianity in the first century, reminding you, For those of you who have forgotten or might not know, Christianity in the first century was a niche, boutique, atheistic religion at best from their perspective. It was not what we think it is today. And N.T. Wright talks about the only plausible explanation for there being a movement of Christianity in the first century, particularly among people that are Jewish, Because to believe in the resurrection, to believe that Jesus is God, was not only unpopular, it was heretical. However, thousands of people, overnight, believed in this message. Why? Because they must have seen the resurrected Jesus. It's the only explanation for the movement and the growth of Christianity in the first century and... It's the only explanation of why we're even here this morning, like what we're even doing. If the resurrection is not true, then you don't even need to worship online. But we believe the resurrection is true, and John chapter 20 is a proclamation that says our faith in Christ is rooted in the resurrection of the Christ. If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to adhere to Christianity, if you want to become a Christian, if you want to grow as a Christian, your life and your faith, your thoughts and your heart must be centered on this one reality, that is the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is based upon faith in the resurrection, and this faith is impossible but it's also deeply rational. And I want us to explore three characteristics of the faith that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. At the faith of the heart of the resurrection, this faith must be based upon evidence. This faith must be seen as developmental. And this faith must also be shared through joint testimony. So knowing that the resurrection is at the heart of Christianity, And our faith in Christ is specifically in our faith in the resurrection of Jesus. This faith must have evidence. This faith must be seen as progressive or developmental throughout our life, in addition to it being initially a reality. And then this faith also was made to be shared. So let's look first at the evidence for this faith. So as you see at the beginning of this text, John's writing this, though he doesn't mention himself Personally, most scholars believe that John writes himself into the story, even in some funny ways. So there's a lot of running. I don't know if you noticed this. There's a lot of running going on in this passage. There's some level of, I don't know if it's excitement. It's probably not excitement because everyone that studied this concludes no one expected the tomb to be empty. Let's just think about that for a minute. This story reveals to us that no one in this narrative expected the tomb to be empty. Therefore, I don't know exactly why they were running. I'm sure it was anxiety. I'm sure there were fears. I'm sure there was curiosity. But I don't know that they were running out of excitement. I can remember as a kid running down the stairs, speaking of Christmas, on Christmas morning to see what was under the tree because I was excited. And I expected things to be there. Well, these men were running expecting to find the body of Jesus as if they had not listened to what Jesus had been saying for the last three years. Or maybe they just didn't want to hear what Jesus had been saying for the last three years of his life, but they ran to see this evidence and in fact, the text tells us, once again, humorously, the disciple whom Jesus loved outran the other disciple. I really don't know what theological emphasis that provides there. I don't know if he just couldn't help to kind of get one up on Peter at this point and then let it be indelibly in the Word of God forever, that John was faster than Peter. Check mark, We got it. But they're running to a literal tomb like this is happening. This is evidence they go to a tomb, and this is undisputed, by the way, that, there, that Jesus really was a real man who lived in the first century. Jesus really died on a cross. Jesus really was buried in a tomb. All of these things are with really substantially without debate. I'm not saying that there's no one ever that doesn't believe this, but nobody that is thoughtful or respected in any academic or human circles believes that Jesus did not exist and that Jesus did not die and that Jesus was not put in a tomb. Everybody believes this. It's historically accurate. There's evidence. We have this. And then this story gives evidence of these men coming to the tomb looking. And then when they get to the tomb, speaking of evidence, they find something that's very curious. It's empty. Once again, they weren't expecting it to be empty. But not only is the tomb empty, and of course their thoughts immediately go to who took him Where did they put him? That's really weird. Whoever took him decided to fold his clothes. And then they probably start thinking, "Um, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. If they took his body, they would, number one, probably keep the cloths, and number two, if for some reason they felt like they needed to rip these off, they sure wouldn't fold them and, like, separate them into these, like, different piles. Like, here's the cloths that were on the body, and here's the cloth that was on his face and head. And then they have another awareness. They think, you know what? I do think I remember him saying something about him being raised from the dead. And then the text tells us in verses 9 and 10, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw... And he believed. At this point, he gets it. One of the overarching things that I want us to get this morning, and, and this is true whether you would put yourself in the, within the boundary of Christianity or outside the boundary of Christianity. This isn't, faith in Christ is not something that you automatically, immediately, fully capture and get. It's progressive. It's developmental. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But John and Peter knew these things. They knew a lot already, but they did not know this fully. And at this point, they saw and they believed. N.T. Wright says this, Something quite new surges up in the young disciple, a wild delight at God's creative power. He remembers the moment ever afterwards. It was a different sensation, a bit like falling in love. I love that. He says, When John saw the empty tomb, he had a sensation that was new and different. Maybe it felt a little bit like falling in love. And then he goes on to say, or maybe it felt like a sunrise or maybe it felt like a good hard rain after a drought. Can you imagine the sensation that would have rushed over these disciples in their minds, in their hearts, and their experiences? They saw the tomb empty. Speaking of this, let's return to that conversation that the New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof is having with this Christian apologist and scholar. And Nicholas Kristof, through his own seeking and searching, understands that there seems to be some fuzziness surrounding the details of Jesus' resurrection. And so Nicholas Kristof asked the Christian apologist and scholar, hey, what about in the Gospels where there are these like different accounts? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all seem to kind of be saying some different things. There seems to be some fuzziness Going on, like Mary of Magdalene Magdalene didn't even recognize Jesus? That's weird. Like, what's up with that? The apologist answers, I wouldn't characterize the New Testament descriptions of the risen Christ as fuzzy. They are very concrete in their details, and our text gives evidence of this. Yes, Mary doesn't recognize Jesus at first, but then she does. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 also don't recognize Jesus at first. Their experience was analogous to meeting someone you last saw as a child 20 years ago. Many historians have argued that this is the, has the ring of eyewitness authenticity, and this is the kicker. So, that, so this skeptic is saying the fuzziness seems to detract from the legitimacy of Christianity. The scholar goes on to say, if you are making up a story about the resurrection... Would you have imagined that Jesus was altered enough not to be identified immediately, but not so much that he couldn't be recognized after a few moments? It's basically like, why would you make up this detail? And then he goes on to say, furthermore, a further apologetic for the legitimacy of the resurrection, if you were making up a religion or if you were making up the central part of a religion, I promise you, you would not have a woman in their day and time as the central core witness of The truth. Some people will refer to Mary Magdalene accurately as the actual first true Christian. Doesn't mean that there were no Christians before, but she's the first one that saw the resurrected Lord. She's the first apostle that then went to tell the other apostles. And this is quite an apologetic given the fact that a woman's testimony culturally in the first century was not honored nor seen as significant. It was completely neglected. Why would you write into a story? that has this truth at the heart of it, a woman's testimony being so central to it. It's not fuzzy and uncertain. There are details here, real human details. So faith has evidence, but faith also has what I've already alluded to, this idea of development and progression. And this really ought to be encouraging to us, that even the disciples who spent time like think about this. You, Some of you have probably been in some great small group Bible studies before that had some really fantastic leaders and facilitators, maybe even in the ones that we're offering right now. But nobody's ever been in a small group Bible study better than the ones that Jesus led. And Peter and John were in Jesus's RPI group. And guess what? They didn't get it. They didn't have an aha moment immediately. There was a progression and a development to their faith where they started to believe. Speaking of starting to believe, do you think I would go on Master Sunday in a sermon and not mention the Masters? Of course not, those of you who know me. The 1986 Masters was one for the ages in the books. And I heard an interesting take on it the other night on the Golf Channel is Lance Barrow, who is a long time produ- the longtime producer for CBS on TV, off camera. He's not the Jim Nance of CBS. He's the opposite of Jim Nance for CBS, behind the scenes. But he's the producer of the Masters for CBS, and he's done this forever. He wasn't the head honcho in 1986, but he was on the job, and he was an assistant producer in 1986 during the Masters working for his boss, who was the producer. And they talk about what it was like trying to get, he was talking about what it was like to get his director, the senior producer, to believe that Jack Nicholas was worth putting on TV in the final round of the Masters. Jack Nicholas started in one of the very last groups on the last day in 1986, I still remember this when I was 11 years old. This is really what caught fire for me, watching with my dad when I was 11. My dad, absolutely uncharacteristic for who he is, like have an amazing array of emotion watching this iconic golfer, Jack Nicholas win this thing. And I used to, at that point, I thought, this is something. This is amazing. Well, Jack Nicholas in 1986, just to set the scene... He entered the final round, tied for ninth place, um, four shots out of the lead, and placed in the fifth-to-last group to begin the day. At this point also in, Nicholas, in this, Nicholas's career, he had not won a tournament in over two years. He had not won a major in over six years, and he was 160th on the money list in 1986 in the PGA Tour and he starts out the day and pars every hole, all the way through number eight. He's a non-issue. He's not worth. Put that. They don't even have him on TV. He's not getting any coverage. And then he birdies nine. And then he birdies ten. And Lance Barrow has already been prodding his director, who decides what goes on camera, who decides what goes on TV. We need to put Jack on. His director very firmly says, Jack Nicholas is nothing. Jack Nicholas is nothing to this tournament. We're not putting Jack Nicholas on TV. Lance Barrow says, okay. He birdies 10. He says, he birdies 10. Quit talking to me about Jack Nicholas. He birdied 11. He birdied 11. Put him on TV. (laughs) And then he goes to shoot a 30 on the back and win it. There was a progression of belief that that director needed. He needed more evidence. He needed to see more of the wonder that was taking place in that tournament. Well, that's exactly what's happening with Peter and John and Mary. They understood some. They needed to understand more deeply, and that's the nature of faith. It's developmental, and it's progressive. She went from not seeing it That's what the text tells us. She's talking to him. She's talking to the resurrected Jesus. And this is amazing. Like, this seriously should just encourage us. I hope you understand what I'm getting at here. She thought he was the gardener. It's funny. I mean, she's talking to the resurrected. Like, you feel bad that you're not, like, a smart enough Christian or that you don't know enough or that you don't get it enough and you feel guilt and you feel shame. This is a person talking to the resurrected Jesus in person, in real life, in the flesh, and she thinks he's the gardener. Not, not only does she not conclude that he must have been resurrected, which he talked about, she's convinced that someone stole his body, and then she's getting frustrated with Jesus because she thinks he's the gardener, and he doesn't have a clue what's going on. And then he engages with her. She says, Do you, are you the only person that doesn't understand what's going on here? And then she goes from not seeing to seeing. And did you understand and see in this text what allowed her to see for the first time? Four letters. One word. A name. Her name. I know my sheep... By name. And they know my voice. Mary. And then she saw. The text tells us that physically and literally she turned around and saw. But she didn't only physically and literally turn around. Her life at that moment turned around. And not only did her life turn around... I really mean this, and this is not an overstatement. The history of the world turned around when Jesus said Mary. And many of your lives here this morning, your lives have been turned around when you heard Jesus say your name. She did not see, she did see, she saw when she heard her name. Frederick Bruner says, this one word, Mary's own name, spoken by the most significant person she had ever known, changed her whole life. Annie Dillard, Pulitzer Prize winning author, who has not written really in forever, but who's a Christian, she writes often about nature, says this, I had been my whole life a bell, but I never knew it until I was picked up and rung. I had been my whole life a bell, but I never knew it until I was picked up and rung. Well, Jesus in this moment sees Mary as a bell and he picks her up and he rings the truth that he is the resurrection and the life. He calls her name specifically. From a point of application, you have to see this. Jesus did not just die for sin generally. Jesus was not just generally resurrected for people who would believe in him. Jesus died for your sin, put your name in it. Jesus was resurrected for you, your name, not just general sin. And this is what builds her faith. Before I make the last point, let me say this about faith. I think we oftentimes are very confused about the nature of faith, to say the least. We focus very heavily, and I don't know why this is the case, upon the strength of our faith. I just don't feel like my faith is strong enough. I just don't feel like a good Christian. I'm not a strong Christian. I don't read my Bible in the way I ought to read my Bible. I don't pray in the way I ought to read my Bible. I don't know that much about the resurrection. I don't read scholars. I don't know. My faith is just not that strong. Well, here's the good news. Christianity is not based upon the strength of your faith. It's based upon the object of your faith. I remember it was either two or three years ago when we had an amazing cold snap here that was pretty uncharacteristic for the South. It reminded me of living in St. Louis, and lakes and ponds froze over. Crystal Lake, just right over here outside of our neighborhood, across North Shore, was a solid sheet of ice. People were ice skating on it. Understandably, in Knoxville, it's not something that we're used to doing, and so there was a leeriness among all who were there. Can we go out onto the ice? Well, I can promise you this and that experience— regardless of how good or bad I felt about the ice, that made no difference on whether the ice was gonna hold me. It wasn't about the strength of my belief in the ice, it was about the strength of the ice. And that's how faith is. It's not about the strength of our faith, it's about the strength of the object of our faith that saves us. And Mary understands this. One conclusion we see this component that faith also has a missional aspect to it. So faith has an evidential aspect to it. Faith has a developmental aspect to it. But then faith also has a missional or testimonial aspect to it. And I already said this, but I'll repeat it again. Mary's the, Mary Magdalene's the first apostle. She's the first person that we know of in recorded history to see the risen Jesus. And she went and shared it with the other apostles. That's what we're supposed to do with the glory and the beauty of the resurrection. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to share it with other people. Because we know that people need the supernatural. We need something outside of ourselves to be true, to anchor us, to bring stability. Even though we have a proclivity to be like Thomas Jefferson and simply see Christianity or Jesus as a place of benevolent morals or ethics, what we really need is Jesus to be a supernatural, resurrected Lord. And I love the author of this article Just this past week, modern day, in the Atlantic, James Parker, a staff writer for the Atlantic Magazine, ends the article this way, having it up to this point in the article, no idea where he personally stands. He's just reporting what Jefferson did. And then Parker ends by saying, I need Jesus and his miracles and his divine nature. I need the celestial reverb they give to his words Mystery, wonder, confusion, they're the, eth- they're the essence. Like the yeast that leavens the bread, like the treasure buried in the field, to take a razor to that, you're in trouble. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that this is true. We thank you that it is central. We pray that maybe for the first time someone here would come to believe in the glory and the truth of the resurrection, that they would quit taking a razor to that which is supernatural and realize that they need the mystery, even if it's confusing. For those of us who already believe, we pray that we would deepen, that you would deepen our faith and that we would have hope in the fact that it's not about our faith being strong, but it's about the strength of the object, where our faith is placed, which is in you, Jesus, and we're thankful for you and your resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen.